Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 12. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. I hope your past week was a good one and that you all kept yourselves safe. From what I've been seeing out there, 2020 seems to be the year of Hold My Beer, to borrow a line from Craig Allenson's Expeditionary Force series. Speaking of lines, I've got Chapter 11 of Outcast on deck for you. If you're listening to this on the original Outcast podcast feed, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this new show over on podchaser.com or at the show's site at kickit.yo5.ca. But for now, let's get into Chapter 11 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 11 The next morning came all too quickly. Excited as I was to be starting this new page of my life, I couldn't deny the fact that my bed felt just oh so warm and soft. It was tough to leave it behind. Of course, it didn't help that during the night I dreamt of Shiana, the first time I'd done so since before my attack. I wasn't sure exactly why I had the dream. I mean, there was no way we'd ever be together so long as I was in exile. Perhaps it was just my mind riding the good feelings I'd gone to bed with the night before. This day marked the end of my moping about feeling sorry for myself, and the beginning of my reclaiming of some of my dignity. I could hold my head high, knowing I was doing something to better myself despite my exile. If feeling such a way conjured up dreams of a lost love, then so be it. After shaking the cobwebs out of my head, I moved about as quietly as I could so as not to disturb the cougar. I packed a couple of camp meals and a change of clothes into my knapsack before putting it by the door. I was about to leave when I looked back at her. She was still sleeping peacefully, and while I hated the thought of disturbing that sleep, I figured it best to at least let her know I was heading out for the day. That was a decision I soon regretted. I knelt beside her and reached out for her shoulder. The second I touched it, she cut loose a scream that knocked me flat on my backside. She rolled away from me, trying frantically to get free of the blanket which entangled her. Finally, she managed to get to her hands and knees, and she glared right at me, a look of utter terror in her eyes. Easy, I said, putting my hands up. It's me, remember? The guy who's trying to help you? She said nothing, but continued to stare at me with those fear-filled eyes. She was hyperventilating, and what I could see of her body was trembling violently. Whatever dream I'd awakened her from, it must have been horrifying. To what depths of depravity did a mind go to scare someone that much? After about a minute, her breathing slowed. Her eyes seemed to come back into focus, and when they locked on me, I felt my temperature drop. Still, even her usual glare of contempt was infinitely better than what I'd seen only a minute before. What? she growled harshly. What the hell do you want? I... I just wanted to let you know that I was heading out for the day, I said. I didn't want you to wake up and one- Whatever, she interrupted, crawling back to her mat. 
Fine. Have a nice day, blah, blah, blah. You want a goodbye kiss, too? Fine, I sighed. See you tonight, I suppose. I headed for the door and slung my knapsack over my shoulder. What was it I'd said the night before about wanting to help her? Well, I did say I was up for a challenge. I just didn't realize how much of a challenge it was going to be. It was too late to back out of it now, though, wasn't it? I stepped out into the early morning air and closed the door. I took a step away from the dwelling when I heard something coming from within. At first, I was thinking of opening the door to see what was going on, but instead I merely leaned in and pressed my ear to it. I closed my eyes and felt my heart sink as I heard the one sound I not only least expected, but also felt guilty for causing. It was the sound of her crying. I learned that traveling solo in a transport greatly cut down my travel time to the Port Authority. From start to finish, the trip took just over half an hour, which put me at the gate well ahead of the 0630 required time. I was relieved that despite what happened at the dwelling this morning, I was able to make it to work ahead of time. The last thing I needed was to show up late on my first day. Not exactly the best way to make a first impression. Once I cleared security, Shariah escorted me back to the office where I'd been the day before. However, instead of taking me to the port manager's office, we headed into another one that looked a bit like a doctor's office combined with a home fitness center. I remember the facility reminding me of the rehabilitation center at the hospital, though not as elaborate. The evaluation took about two hours, during which time my sight, hearing, and tactile senses were all evaluated, as well as my physical strength and endurance. I made sure not to go overboard during the strength tests, trying my best to appear just slightly above average for someone my age. The leopard physician evaluating me didn't bat so much as an ear during the tests. He merely nodded each time before making a mark on his chart. When the test was done, it was revealed that I was, according to the leopard, more than fit for duty, so Shariah escorted me out of the administration building and towards another building adjacent to it. There, someone measured me from head to toe and issued me a pair of blue coveralls, safety boots, gloves, and a few other items. Shariah led me to another building next, this one a bit closer to where people seemed to be working. This next building was the change house slash break area, which, to my surprise, was co-ed. As we walked in, I could see people milling about in various states of dress and undress, both male and female. I remember my ears blushing hot that first day, an almost primal sense of modesty and shyness washing over me. <laughs> the innocence of youth. My escort, however, seemed unmoved by this as she led me to one of several empty lockers. After a few moments, its locking device was calibrated to my palm, at which point I stowed my knapsack inside. I then changed into my new work clothes and stowed my civvies in the locker before we headed out again. Shariah then introduced me to Alistair Krang, a stiff-looking lion who spoke with a high Lakaian accent. After introductions, Alistair took me on a tour of the facility. I remember being wide-eyed as he showed me the workings of the docks. At first glance, it appeared chaotic with the amount of people and vehicles moving about, but as I watched, every motion seemed to have a purpose. Gargantuan cargo ships lay still in their berths as the towering cranes nimbly plucked their loads of containers off one by one, either placing them on skimmer platforms 
or stacking them in preset patterns on the ground. As you can see, said Alistair as we walked, it takes more than mere machines to properly tend to these vessels. He was right. Every docked ship had a small crew completely devoted to it, and many of those people wore the same color coveralls as I did. I felt reassured by seeing this, as I initially feared what I was wearing would point me out as a low man or something. When we finished with the docks, Alistair guided me towards where the Port Authority tended to its other form of cargo hauling, the tarmac and hangars. Here, I could see ships of varying sizes and shapes resting on their landing pads, their cargo doors opened and crews tending to the cargo within. Here, no cranes worked the offloading and reloading of cargo. Instead, smaller machines like forklifts, skimmer trucks, and power loaders managed the tasks. I noted as we walked that the containers here were a lot smaller than those I'd seen on the seafaring vessels. Many of these ships are mere ferry craft, said Alistair as we walked. The interstellar freighters are far too large for atmospheric flight, and instead dock at the Ascension Orbital Station. On reflex, I looked up at the sky. From there, these ferry ships transfer the received goods here for distribution. I learned about Ascension Station in school, and saw a few documentaries about it on the telescreen. I wondered if this new job would land me on that station at some point in the future. We also do get some smaller courier ships, Alistair continued as we walked. Those we keep in the hangars, as for them, security is usually a priority. He gestured towards the immense buildings flanking the tarmac. I had a feeling I wouldn't be seeing the insides of those for a while. And on occasion, we find ourselves dealing with ships that cannot dock at the station, but are not designed to land on world. For those, he gestured to a series of pillars off to one side of the tarmac. Those pylons emit a reduced gravity field when activated, he explained. This way, larger ships can keep the reactors powered at all times. I shudder to think just what kind of ship would require such an elaborate facility just to transfer cargo. The spaceport area is more for the specialized workers, Alistair explained. You'll be starting dockside, as all workers do. Should you decide to, after your evaluation period, you may start your training progression on the various equipment we use here. I nodded, already thinking ahead to that point just a few months away. While I was sure I could make a decent living as a general laborer, I figured there would be no better way to further hide my identity from prying eyes than to try to better myself. After the tour of the spaceport, Alistair took me back to the docks and introduced me to some more of the crew members there. Overall, they seemed a friendly group, and I got the impression that they'd be more than willing to teach someone who was willing to learn. I'd later learn about everyone's little personality quirks and how they all interacted with each other. But for the moment, I had the feeling I was in good company. I had no idea how quickly that feeling would change. My first assignment was with a handling crew for a seafaring freighter called the McCavy. For as long as she remained in the Corrala City docks, she would be as much my responsibility as anyone else on that crew. I ended up shadowing several of the workers during that first shift. My official job designation was Junior Port Operative which was a fancy way of saying general laborer. No, this didn't make me a mere deck cleaner or vehicle washer. During that first shift, I was on the water helping with navigation buoys, 
escorting the ship's crew on an inspection tour of the ship's exterior, and a lot of learning. There were many jobs an operative could perform, and being the new guy, they were trying to find exactly what roles I could fill comfortably. By the end of the shift, I was exhausted. The group tried me out on as many duties as time would allow, along with the promise of more of the same happening the next day. Eventually, I would settle into one or two different roles that I could perform as needed, but for now, the McCavy handling crew seemed happy throwing me into whatever was there to see if I could handle it. I'd like to think I impressed them that first day. At the end of the shift, I cleaned up, changed, and was on my way to Kras's dance studio as quickly as possible. Unlike the last time I was there, the place had undergone a startling transformation. Practice dummies, weapon racks, and holo projectors littered the place, and I remember spending most of that first session wondering just how many others were going to show up. The answer to that was none. I was his only student that night. The first night of training was more of an orientation-slash-evaluation session. Krasa had me run through whatever katu drills I could remember from my grandfather, and while I was impressed with all I could remember, he seemed anything but. He also assessed my strength and endurance, which reminded me a lot of that torturous month I spent in rehabilitation. Like my time at the hospital, I tried to beat his expectations in terms of how far I could push myself. However, like with my drills, he remained completely stone-faced. After three hours of testing, testing, and more testing, he finally said, That is all. And he bid me to change back into my regular clothes. I remember never having felt more confused than I had at that moment. Grandfather had been a very vocal teacher and was quick to point out when I'd done something wrong in a routine. He'd always stressed to me the importance of precision and form when it came to Katu, and I'd always assumed the same for any martial art. I had just emerged from the change room when I noticed Krasa standing at the door. Again, his muzzle bore no kind of expression other than neutral, which really bothered me. In our past meetings, he seemed to think I had what it took not only to become a Lautari, but possibly one of the greatest in recent years. Had I done something to let him down? Was this night the last time I would see him? You did well tonight, he finally said as I approached. You have retained much of your past training, which means you take instruction well. I will see you in two days, when your real training will begin. I bowed slightly in thanks and headed out the door. It hadn't been much of a compliment, but I was willing to take what I could get. I'd like to say that first week of my new life was all positive and filled me with sparkling rainbow feelings of hope for the future. However, by the end of it, I was feeling anything but. Instead, I was reminded rather harshly of the reality of who and what I was, and that trouble was only a step or two behind me, waiting for me to slip or grow complacent. There was an ocelot on the McCavy crew. He didn't say much to anyone, and often walked with a posture I could only describe as deflated. He did his work from what I could see, but he was mechanical in his motions. He ran on automatic, with no real emotion or expression. I suspected his true status as an exile like me, only to have it confirmed on my last day of work. During our meal breaks, a lot of less-than-civil remarks abounded about exiles and what a blemish they were on society. 
The off-color jokes made amused several of the workers, and I admit I laughed at them too. At the time, I still thought myself above most exiles, mostly because of that night at the warehouse, and what I did versus what they didn't do. I had little to no sympathy for any of them, so why not have a few laughs at their expense? It was during one of these improvised comedy routines that the ocelot finally stood up. His poise was like that of a clansman, and his voice rang true and loud as befitted his former heritage. He decried the comedian's pathetic attempts at humor, and how he would fare no better were he cast out from society. My eyes went wide. He had just admitted that he was an exile, and I remember holding my breath, praying that he didn't out me as well. I didn't recognize him from the warehouse, but if he'd been there the night of my outburst, he could easily tear down this little ruse I'd only just constructed. Thankfully, he'd only incriminated himself, and the place suddenly went quiet. All eyes were on him, but he stood tall and proud. I wondered what exactly was going through his mind at that moment. Had he finally snapped? Had the constant abuse finally pushed him over the edge? What would motivate someone to admit they stood for the very object of hatred of this crew? The buzzer suddenly sounded, ending the meal period, and we all moved quickly to stow our things and return to work. The ocelot walked out of the break room with his head held high. That was the last I saw of him. The official report, according to Sharia, was that he'd taken his own life like every other exile on the docks, but I knew better. As we all hit the showers after our shift, I saw the blood running down the drain, originating from several people's knuckles. It didn't take a sage to deduce what happened. I felt sick to my stomach. From the Shatlia, I would expect such cruelty, but for these people? What really put, as the humans say, the icing on the cake for the week was at the end of my last shift. I was just changing when Shariya stopped by. Again, I was a little unsettled by being nearly naked in front of her, and the look in her eyes told me she knew exactly how I felt and that she was enjoying it. I quickly dressed and she walked out with me. So, she said, how was your first week? Definitely educational, I replied. I let her read into that whatever she wanted. I was too tired and frustrated to care. She didn't seem to notice the subtext, though. She followed me out of the change house and walked with me all the way out to the front gate. Our conversation alternated between how much the week had dragged and our plans for the weekend. Well, her plans for the weekend. From the sounds of it, her grand scheme of relaxation involved several dance clubs, several drinks, and some hot and heavy action with one or more males of her choosing. As I said earlier, she was nice to look at, and I imagined away from a place like this, she was a nice enough person. I couldn't shake what I knew about her attitude, though, and that knowledge even made her physical beauty seem that much less appealing. What about you? she finally asked. Got any plans for the weekend? Not really, I replied. I thought briefly about my roommate, whose recovery was progressing well enough. She was moving about more, and yesterday I'd caught the scent of damp fur in the dwelling when I'd returned. She obviously found the pool. I'll probably spend it around town. As we reached the gate, I felt her hand on my arm. It wasn't a forceful grip, but tender, almost caring. 
I looked into her eyes and saw what I thought was a look of genuine sympathy. My ears perked up in curiosity. It must be awful living in a hostel, she said. Especially after losing your family the way you did. I shrugged. It's just a place to lay my head for now, I said. Nothing more. Someday I'll find something better. I turned to go, and her grip grew more insistent. You know, she said, her voice getting a husky tone, you could lay your head somewhere else this weekend. Remember what I said about males of her choosing? I quickly realized I was one of those choices. At that moment, I wanted to laugh until I was in tears. The irony of the situation was so delicious, I almost licked my lips. I envisioned myself taking her up on her invitation, going to her home, and letting her have her way with me all weekend. Then, in that last moment of afterglow, as I held her through the last of our ecstasy together, I'd lean into her ear and whisper gently, By the way, you just bedded an exile. The purely sadistic nature of such a thing sent a shiver up my spine. It would almost be worth risking my job and my cover just to put it in that arrogant panther's face that she'd not only been attracted to, but had spent an entire weekend loin-locked with one of the fallen from the clans. She'd never live it down. Unfortunately for me, such a prank would no doubt cost me my job, and given how the other dock workers fawned after her, I'd probably end up in worse shape than that ocelot had, cybernetic strength or not. Instead, though, I merely covered her hand with mine and smiled. Another time, maybe, I said gently. But thank you. She seemed disappointed by my decline, but she recovered quickly, smiling in some form of understanding. I smiled back briefly before heading out the gate to summon a transport. Before long, I was on my way to my last training session of the week where I could hopefully work through my growing anger. As I traveled, I was already starting to envision every practice target as a member of the dock worker crew, all of them with smug looks on their muzzles, just begging to be clawed off by me. These feelings were a little disturbing, but at the same time they felt, well, delicious. It was early evening by the time I stepped off the transport near my dwelling. I had to walk carefully as every part of my body was in pain. Krasa had noted my frustration the moment I'd stepped into his studio, and after that he proceeded to have his holographic sparring partners beat that frustration out of me. Each time I fell, he merely pointed out that anger served no purpose to the Lautari, except to cloud one's thoughts and block from the conscious mind the way to the beast within. He was also quick to point out that predators never struck out in malice or hatred. Their actions, like those of the Lautari, obeyed the forces of nature. Every encounter was a contest between predator and prey, not between enemies. It was a tough lesson to learn, and my body paid for it. Even if I had taken Shariah up on her carnal offer, I would have been in no shape to do much more than lay there while she used me. It felt as if bruises covered every part of my body, and my muscles ached something fierce. I think the only thing that kept me from collapsing where I stepped off the transport was my enhanced strength. Otherwise, I would have merely laid there all weekend. As it was, I limped back to my dwelling, feeling that anger begin to build again. 
I was fully expecting either some remark from my cougar roommate or a healthy dose of silence. In the latter, she didn't disappoint. I stumbled inside, startling her to the point where she shrieked, but then stopped the moment she saw me. She then let out an exasperated sigh and returned her attention to the low fire in the fireplace. I said nothing and merely unpacked my knapsack. Once done, I fished out a camp meal for myself and put out a couple for her. That had become our routine over the past few days. I pick one, then she picks one. After that, I would put the others away for the next day's ritual. Beyond that, there was little, if any, interaction between us. Gods, she'd been here a week, and I still didn't know her name. The thought of spending an entire weekend cooped up in my dwelling with her like this was about as appealing to me as spending the weekend with Shariah. Of course, at least with Shariah, there would be some form of interaction, verbal or otherwise. How are you feeling? I asked finally, halfway through my dinner. Is the medicine working? I'm feeling better. Her tone was sullen, but neutral. We ate in silence for a few minutes before she did something that took me completely off guard. She asked me a question. So how was your week? She asked. I went over my week's activities without mentioning my training. Given the clan's thoughts on the art of the Lautari, I thought it best that I keep that a little secret to myself for the time being. Still, I was able to talk about learning the different duties on the docks, some of the people, and for some stupid reason I mentioned what happened with the Ocelot exile. The next words out of her mouth were some of the most heartless ones I'd ever heard. So, did you bury him too, or did they do it for you? I dropped my tray and glared at her. My right hand began shaking with building rage, and it took everything I had not to pounce and strangle that hateful life out of her. As it was, I quickly stood up, ignoring the pain in my legs, and made for the door. I couldn't stand to be in the same room as her at that moment. Where are you going? she asked. I merely glared back at her, seeing the sudden shift in her face from sarcasm to fear. There were so many things I wanted to say, but for some reason I couldn't get my mouth to move the right way. Instead, I headed outside, slamming the door as I did so. I don't know how long I sat there at the foot of the grave I'd dug only a few days before. I can't remember how many tears of defeat and frustration I cried while sitting there. I was tired, and I'd had enough. I tried. I'd tried so damn hard to do the right thing, and for what? Why was I pushing myself so hard when the entire world wanted to push me back? What was the point? The cougar's little quip finally put everything in perspective for me. I really had nothing anymore. I had no one. It didn't matter how hard I tried, or how much unlike an exile I tried to be. That's what I would always be. That was how others would see me. All the achievements and all the accomplishments in the galaxy wouldn't matter to them. The moment they found out what I was, everything I'd done wouldn't amount to a pile of baloth dung. I never heard her approach. My grief dominated all my thoughts. I must have looked like a fool right then, sitting before a grave blubbering like some kitten. When I realized she had sat down beside me, I braced myself for another round of taunting. She'd already shown me that kicking someone when they were down wasn't beneath her. 
I clenched my hand into a fist, ready to retaliate, when she spoke three words that were so filled with compassion and regret that I nearly fell over. Cyrus was right. I turned to her, hastily wiping away any tears that were still running down my muzzle. What did Cyrus have to do with any of this? She was looking right at me when she said it, and for the first time she didn't have that anger in her eyes. There was apprehension, sure, but the normal, spiteful, hateful glare I'd grown used to seeing was nowhere on her muzzle. If anything, she started to look like that tender person I'd watched her become when she slept. What do you mean? I sniffled. After you left with them, she said, motioning towards the grave, he said you had a big heart, and that someday it was going to hurt you. Score one for Cyrus, I said bitterly. Big heart and a soft head. I turned away, looking back towards the grave. I never thought the world could be so hateful, I said, wondering how long this respite from her normal personality would last. Makes me wonder why I even tried in the first place. We all tried, she said. We all tried at the start, just like you, but over time we gave up. She sighed. The world just opens you up and swallows you whole. That's why no one helped you that night. It wasn't that they were afraid. They didn't care. Do you? I asked. Do you care? I thought I didn't, she answered after a while. At first I didn't believe you when you said you were going to bury them. I... I followed you that first night to this place. I watched you dig that grave and lay them in it. Why did you come back the next night? She shrugged. I wanted to see for myself what you did again, she said. I don't know. Part of me hoped that maybe if I saw it, if I touched it, maybe I could get back part of that spark that you still have in you. Of course, then the sickness hit and the rest you know. Yeah, I said, my words sounding tired and defeated. I'm sorry, Dallin, she said finally. And at this, I turned to face her again. Her expression hadn't changed. She really meant what she said. I know I've been a bitch this past week to you, and you didn't deserve it. It's hard for me to trust people, and being sick, I... Her voice trailed off. It sounded to me like there was more there, but I didn't want to pry. Hell, I was still trying to get over the fact that she was finally talking to me and being nice about it. She finally continued. You've shown me more kindness this week than anyone in Chanto shown me since I got here, she said. And for that I'm grateful. I forced a smile, still feeling glum. She smiled back, and in the fading sunlight I finally saw that face I'd only seen when she slept. She was breathtaking. Thanks, I said. It's good to know at least someone appreciates what I'm doing. She leaned towards me and, to my utter shock, planted a small kiss on my cheek. I thought I felt every strand of fur on my body stand straight up when she did that. As much as I'd blushed before in the change room at work, I was positive my ears were glowing now. Let's go back inside, she said, standing. I think we have a lot to talk about. And we did. And that's our story. 
I changed the ending music clip of this chapter because I thought a softer outro was more fitting. There's no real cliffhanger on this particular chapter, so the music I've normally been using just didn't seem to fit. From now on, depending on how the chapter ends, I'll be using the appropriate outro. So something really interesting happened to me last week. Some of you might know that I'm a Second Life user, and have been for more than a few years. Last Thursday, I was in one of my usual hangouts with some of the regulars there, when this new person came in. Now, my character in Second Life is also named Dallin, and this newcomer recognized the name. Their exact words were, and I quote, Heh. A tiger named Dallin. Reminds me of an old audiobook I remember. To which one of the regulars replied, again I quote, It was probably written by this tiger. And yes, my avatar in Second Life is an anthropomorphic tiger. Well, needless to say, this person was a wee bit shocked, and even more so when they learned that I had reworked most of the novel and was now re-recording it. If you're listening to this one, I hope you're enjoying the new Outcast so far, and that you'll stick around to the end and beyond. This is what I've always loved about podcasting and creating content this way. There's very little in the way of barriers between you and your audience. Now, I'll grant you that that can work against you in some cases, but I'd like to think that more often than not, the interactions are positive and constructive. Sure, you might pick up a couple of haters out there, but it's worth it if you also generate a fan base. Speaking of content, my writing has come along pretty well this past week. The outlining of a new beginning is coming along very well, and I'm seeing it take shape more and more. It's already evolved well past the short story upon which it's based, so I'll call that a major bit of progress. So I think I'll end it here for now. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or leave an audio feedback via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.